Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. In the days of coronavirus, I had my good friend Brock Pierce on the show, the founder of Blockchain Capital, child actor for many years. You've probably seen him in either the Mighty Ducks or Disney's first kid. Brock is one of the most famous people in the Bitcoin and crypto industry. And that was before he said that he would donate his billion dollar net worth to complete charity. And he's been doing it, literally rebuilding single-handedly the electric grid with his team of people in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Irma going down there. Brock was the founder of Blockchain Capital in 2013 and invested in so many projects and companies. One of the founders of EOS with Dan Larimer, one of the founders of Tether USDT, and one of the founders of Noble Bank and Medici Bank. But why haven't you heard of Brock being one of the founders of these companies? Well, if you listen to the show, you'll learn that Brock is not incentivized by money anymore like, like you and I are. He's incentivized by making the world a better place. And so when he founds these projects and his companies, he actually tells them, I don't want a lot of equity. I want a very little. And I was like kind of calling him a little bit crazy. But you have to listen to the rest of the show because this is one of those episodes where I didn't talk much, where I listened and I learned, and I know you will too. Enjoy. Please, in, in these trying days, give some love to the sponsors. Let's keep this economy going. Love, stay healthy, stay blessed. I'll talk to you guys in a minute. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Bitpanda, for making today's episode possible. We'll hear more about them later on on this episode. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. We're living in a days of unprecedented havoc, chaos, organized chaos in a lot of places, but just craziness. And fortunately, we're able to do this show remotely And coming today, my good friend is Brock Pierce on the show on Untold Stories. Brock, thank you so much for coming on the show. Charlie, thank you for having me. I have to say I'm really fortunate and feel blessed and honored that I was able to to meet you those years ago because following, you know, your story, and we've spoken about this so many times, um, following your story has helped me uh, personally in, in my own, but also like reading back your personal story and doing the research over the past, um, you, you know, you're still very young. The, the short life you've lived has just been insane uh, in, in an amazing way, not just with, with crypto, but going back when you first got into, um, first got into to doing anything business-wise, um, when you retired from being a, a child actor, you, you jumped right into it and, and you started working and when I, saw, when I was doing the research, and this is where I'm going to get to my first question, um, your your first project, your first company after retiring from from uh, being a child actor, and I watched you in in a few movies, was uh, a startup that was focused on the creation and delivery of original video content. So original video content in the late '90s. And Brock, if I if my research is correct, there was no wide adoption of broadband in in those years. I mean, there was no wide adoption of even dial up. I mean, this was, so you're talking about putting, you know, video on the internet in a time when people weren't even talking about putting text on the internet, like, like, like actual text, you know? So what was in your head back then? Why were you thinking this would be, you know, something that would be the future when you would have to go and jump from like step one to step seven, when people weren't even conceptualizing the things that you were saying, Let's do business with this. Well, as, as you said, I grew up as a child actor, so I spent my entire childhood, you know, acting and eventually starring in movies. And so I grew up, you know, as, as a, a product of the media. I also was, uh, you know, tech savvy. 
um, you know, actively using the internet from a young age. And I was also a very entrepreneurial kid. I was building every sort of lemonade stand business you could think of as a child. I was selling software in elementary school. Um, behind the church that I grew up in was the distribution center for, if you remember, games like Oregon Trail and Number Munchers and, you know, uh, Word I miss Muncher. Oregon Trail. And so these sorts of things. And the distributor was right behind my church. And so I used to go diving in the dumpster to get all of the returns. And then I'd bring them to school in second and third grade and I'd rent them for a dollar or sell you the box for five. So you'd have the box and the manual and all these sorts of things. Um, you know, I was, uh, buying and selling Magic the Gathering cards and baseball cards and limited edition Star Trek toys and had the lemonade stand businesses, had the paper routes, uh, had the mowing of lawns, had the shoveling of driveways. I'm a, I was made in Minnesota or born in Minnesota. So I was a very entrepreneurial kid. Um, and then the acting just became such a full-time job that most of my entrepreneurial endeavors, you know, kind of I took a pause. And so after acting, I, the first thing I did is I decided I didn't want to be in front of the camera. I didn't like being famous. And so, um, you know, in the world I'd grown up in, uh, the job that appealed to me, you know, the entrepreneurial aspect to myself was to be the producer. I wanted to, I wanted to create the shows. I wanted to create the movies. And then I, as I started dabbling in independent film production at 16 and 17, I also saw the internet starting to take off, you know, the first big IPOs and, you know, I was talking to people about what was happening there. And my vision was that uh, uh, eventually that computers and internet connections would become, you know, uh, everywhere. Uh, you'd have mass adoption of these things and that broadband was going to take off. And I was looking at, you know, kind of what all the analysts at the time, you know, were saying, the speed at which broadband would increase. And it was supposed to be a couple of years out. And I was thinking, what are the things that are going to, you know, happen when we get broadband internet? And one was that, you know, people would start to watch video on their computers that they would, um, you know, be checking in and they'd probably behave a little differently on their computer versus their couch and, and their television and that you'd probably have short form content. And so we came up with this idea to create webisodes, you know, six minute television shows. And so the idea is that we would create original content. We also thought that um, people would have cell phones and cameras and that people could record videos and upload things. Uh, wait, 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 people, you were talking about these things way back then. I mean, in these meetings, 1990, like in 1997, 1998, 1999. Um, and we also thought that you could license and repurpose original content. So basically we invented what you think of today as Hulu and, or Netflix and YouTube, um, as well as all of the, you know, these YouTube channels. So we, we got the vision, right. Uh, we definitely had a glimpse into the future and uh, we relied on, yeah, we relied on the, what the analysts said. And the view was that broadband was going to roll out much faster than it did. We raised $88 million from, you know, all the top tier sort of investors you can think of Intel, Microsoft, uh, Lazard Frere, Chase Capital Partners of the bank. Um, lots of big name people like Terry Semmel, who was chairman and CEO of Warner brothers at the time. And it was interesting because when, I would meet with the heads of the studios and the, the top entertainment executives in Hollywood. You know, I'd pitch them this idea and they'd be like, well, you're, you're never going to convince me in a million years that people are going to watch video on their, on their computers. And that's why we have televisions. And I'm like, all right, yeah, you just don't get it yet. And so we were spot on about the idea. Um, we were just too early. It taught me a lot about market timing uh, because when the internet bubble burst and I was around for internet 1.0, you know, I'm one of the youngest probably entrepreneurs alive that lived through internet 1.0 at, you know, the age I did and with the, you know, call it the amount of capital raised and the size of the business. We did our last raise from NBC universal at a billion dollar pre, uh, we filed our S one to go public. We were a multi-billion dollar business. At least that's what was perceived. And then we went into a bear market. Um, the internet bubble burst and we went bankrupt along with the other 99% of, you know, call it internet startups at the time that uh, were not profitable, though we did sign $150 million of advertising contracts to 10, you know, charter sponsors at two and a half million year one, five million year two, seven and a half million year three. And our advertisers were like Pepsi and Pizza Hut and Intel. And, you know, we had Dell computers. And so we signed a bunch of these big deals because, you know, people at the time, everybody thought this internet thing was going to be a big deal. 
it just took a lot longer for adoption to occur than you know everyone realized. And the main lesson I learned from it was, I mean, this for me, this was business school. Uh, I was briefly going to USC as a film student, and I dropped out in my first semester because my business started to take off. And so uh, uh, I learned, you know, sort of the entrepreneurial game uh, at a young age, and you know, in a big way, and and again in a you know kind of an unprecedented time for doing business. Uh, and so it was a wonderful learning experience. And again, the main thing I learned is market timing. Uh, that being too early is uh, um, in some ways worse than being too late. How do you, how do you know? You, you don't really, I mean, you, you try to get as much information as you can, as much data, you know, kind of like for those of us in crypto, you know, we're looking at how many wallets are out there. We're looking at transactional volume. We're looking at all kind of the data sets that exist. And then based upon that data, you know, you try to figure out, do I think that the market is ready for my idea? Because you can be right about an idea, but it might be five years too early. And as an entrepreneur, you can't stay alive that long or you'll need to raise too much capital and your cap table will become overly encumbered with investors and debt and expectations. And eventually you, you, uh, uh, you collapse under the weight of the expectations that have been set. Did you ever feel like you were collapsing under the weight of pressure when you were younger? Um, you know, you, you started business very early coming from a career, um, that was very high pressured, high intensity, um, but also a career where, uh, people looked at you as the underdog and, uh, probably treated you, uh, business wise as someone who didn't know anything. And that's probably, you're probably smiling right now, even though I can't see you saying that was one of your best, you know, business advantages and edges over those years that people thought you were the underdog. But, um, what were some, mistakes that you made or things that you learned along the way that you could not have learned in school, only learned from experience that other listeners can, can potentially not make those same business mistakes. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, lots and lots of lessons and your mis you learn a lot more from your mistakes than you certainly you do from your, your successes. You know, market timing was the main thing that I learned from call it that first experience, that first lesson. Definitely. Um, uh, you're, you're correct in the, uh, assumption of like, you know, do people take you seriously? I mean, I, I wore suits all the time when I was young, which is kind of the opposite of what I do these days. But um, <laughs> you know, I would, I would try and dress the part. You know, as an actor, I would, you know, try to look as professional and as an as an adult as I could. <laughs> um, and then uh, eventually, you know, people start to take you seriously when they see other people taking you seriously. And you know, when you start to raise enough money from, you know. Uh, prestigious groups, they start to say, well, uh, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense to me, but maybe there's something here because other people seem to be validating this idea that this kid actually knows something. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so you, you get those things that work for you. But I mean, the, the, the tough stuff was picking people. Um, you know, I didn't have the life experience to, to really know, you know, who were the right people to hire, who were the right partners to have, uh, because I didn't know any better. Uh, I didn't have the experience. And so I, I based my decisions off of, you know, how well they could sell me. Um, I base it off their resumes and things of that nature versus really having a true understanding of innate talent in others and being able to see their, um, call it gifts. And so I relied a lot, on, a lot on, you know, information that is not the best to rely on, which is resumes and things of that nature. And so, uh, uh, that was, a uh, I think a, a key thing is learning how to hire because when you're a startup, your business is uh, your business's success is as much dependent upon you as it is the team that you build. You know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so when you're a startup, you don't have a lot of room for error. You don't have the runway to make a bunch of mistakes and, and to learn on the job. You kind of have to get everything right. The stars have to align for you. And so, um, you know, really be thoughtful in, in who you choose to start your businesses with. Be really thoughtful about who you hire in the beginning because one person, you know, because in, in the beginning you don't, you operate autonomously a little bit. You know, you're understaffed, everyone's wearing too many hats and you're kind of relying on key people in that organization to, to hit their marks. Yeah. And if someone on product development, if you're a developer, you're going, okay, we're launching this thing in April and, uh, they're way off in their expectations and you're not going to be ready until the following April, 
you know, that could be the end of your business and how you stay on top of all of those things. So I, I'd say one of the main lessons I learned is choose, call it the company you keep, choose the people that you partner with, choose the, you know, people that you hire really wisely, you know, be fast, you know, quick to hire, fast to fire. So, so hiring is fire. And when you, when you, and that was another thing I did a bunch of times is I realized someone was wrong uh, for the business, but I was afraid of letting them go, not knowing who would step in. And what often happens is that person then stays in the organization for a long time. You know, in many respects, I mean, the the thing that I, I prefer to do these days is when I know someone is wrong, kind of like cancer, and not to say that person's wrong in life, they're just wrong for me or wrong for this organization. It's not a, a criticism saying that's a bad person. Like toxic they just might, people? Might not, yeah, they might not be the right fit, which is, you know, remove them from the organization quickly and then quickly figure out how to replace them because you can end up with uh, those people sticking around for a long time because you just become complacent. How do you remove toxic people from your life? Uh, gracefully is the goal. Yeah, it's hard yeah. though. Yeah, the goal is to uh, to to have the the will to um, well first have the awareness first of all to to recognize that this person is not serving uh, you in your life. Uh, they're not advancing you in your life, um, and there's a lot of ways that that can manifest itself. And when you come to that realization, when you have that awareness, you know to to try and be graceful um, and to you know kindly separate from that person. And to try not to leave um, that person like, angry. Like angry, yeah. That's and you. You try to do it gracefully. It's like breaking up, right? You know, you you love you love that girl or that guy, whatever you know that you were with, or at least you liked them for some period of time. Yeah. And you know, when you're trying to go through that breakup phase, you know, you try to leave gracefully, leave on a positive note, so that that person's memories of you are. Are, are a positive experience and, and not one that they carry with themselves in the future going, wow, I really hate that person. That's that's because you never know, like if that person could be speaking about you, you're a connector. It's one of your professions. So, you know, um, you have to make sure you, me, everyone that people are going to be talking about us behind our backs. If we can kind of control, not control what they say, but make sure we leave everyone on, on the best note possible. But, um, Speaking of transition, so you've started so many companies uh, and been a part of pre-crypto. I mean, going back uh, a long time to the '90s, and and then you you very successfully, and then you jumped into into crypto into Bitcoin very early on, launching uh, blockchain capital, which invested in dozens of of companies, projects, tokens. Um, you, you jumped into in, in, into Bitcoin, and then eventually into crypto. You know, and and uh, very quickly uh, became someone that was very important to the pioneering of the industry. And that's a very big responsibility that you have. It's not something that, you know, everyone should just be, oh yeah, I'm a pioneer. No, like when you, that means that you're required to go out there in the forest with a seeth or whatever and, and cut through, you know, pioneering is, is not an easy job. Um, and so thank you for doing it. So the question I have for you that you, you brought up uh, a second ago, um, is that how do you, and this is something that I've personally struggled with, and I've still not been able to do it successfully, like full disclosure, how do you transition from a startup that has eight to 10 people where everyone's wearing many hats to a, to a company where you're starting to like have 20, 30 plus people with managers and like layers and, you know, managerial levels and HR, like that transition is traditionally where I've personally not been able to, to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is, you got to ask yourself what your, what your life goal is. Who do you want to be? I did go through that once when I was doing all the the virtual currency stuff where we were making markets in World of Warcraft gold and all that sort of stuff. And we ended up with, I had about a thousand employees. We had about 400,000 subcontractors playing games professionally, professionally to mine digital gold. And I was learning how to operate a, you know, relatively you know, I mean, a a decent sized business with a lot of moving parts. And I learned a lot about operations through the process. And one of the main things I learned is that's not what I want to do. I don't want to be the CEO of a big company. I don't want to have to manage all those things because there's not a lot of learning for me through that process. I learned quite a bit the first time, but eventually what you're doing is you're, you're managing a large organization and making sure that the 
you know, the trains leave on time and that things arrive on time and that, you know, everything's hitting its marks. And what I learned through that process is that's not what I enjoy. I enjoy the process of creation. I enjoy the process of ideation, you know, coming up with the ideas, talking about the ideas, brainstorming through whether or not it's a good idea, figuring out how to pull together the early people to, to, to give birth to that idea. And I, I really don't like being at the organization once it passes 20 people. Um, you know, I, I'm one of the entrepreneurs that believes if I can hire someone better than myself to replace me, I want to replace myself out of the organization as quickly as possible so that I can go do the next thing, which is what I enjoy doing. And so you have to really decide, do you want to be a, a manager you know, of a large business? You know, there are people that have spent their careers learning how to operate and run operations of large organizations. And it's a very different skill set than, than coming up with ideas. They're, they're almost opposite, right? One is to innovate and to be experimenting all the time and coming up with ideas. And as an organization starts to grow, that actually becomes problematic. As an organization is starting to grow, you don't want to be telling uh, that organization, go left, go right, go left, let go up, go down, which is what you do in the very beginning. As an organization starts to find its groove, you really want to do rinse and repeat. And then you want to think big macro and then plan far ahead when you're going to make your turns. And I prefer to be super nimble, which is what organizations are like in the beginning, you know, when they're babies, as they grow up, you know, they, the, the goal is to kind of keep it on a path where you can train people to perform their job functions and you don't want to be changing the job all the time because most people can't adapt to an ever-changing environment and, and part of a successful growing organization is consistency, you know, that you're kind of doing the same thing over and over again because you can train people to do that, um, you know, so that's, that's where, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is an op opposite example of that. You know, he started out as an entrepreneur and he managed through, you know, the growth of that organization. He brought in a very strong operational partner in Sheryl Sandberg. Um, but he wanted to stay, you know, in control of his organization. I don't fear losing control. Um, I appreciate letting go, uh, and allowing that, uh, that organization to take on a life of its own. And it will often do things that I don't like, uh, take Tether, for example. You know, uh, uh, started Tether and relinquished control of that organization very early on. And the organization has gone on to fulfill kind of the dream of, you know, fulfill the opportunity that I saw, which is that stable coins were going to be a big deal. But the organization has made some mistakes that we all have witnessed uh, uh, as an organization. And these are probably things that wouldn't have happened had I been in control. But that's one of the things you, it's like your kids growing up and turning 18 and, you know, sending them off to university, they start to make their own decisions and you kind of have to live with it. And you try to be there as a guide. You try to provide advice when, when they ask and, uh, you know, support yeah, them if they need it. I feel like it's a good, it's a good balance. So, you know, I'm, I'm more like you than, than I am of where I would rather be CEO. I definitely don't. So like you said, if we could ever be in those opportunities where, uh, you have a 20 person company, 30 person company, you can then leave and go keep, continue to keep experimenting and doing something else. But most people will only have like one or two of those opportunities to like make it or break it. You've had so many and you continue to do them. But it seems like you you start these amazing, you have such amazing ideas and you start these amazing projects, Tether, um, EOS. Uh, blockchain capital. These are these are projects that are are pillars of our industry today. But it seems like as it relates to like Tether and EOS, um, the vision changes. You know, the vision changes, like you said, and like it seems like you're okay with it as it relates to Tether. But don't you ever f like not fear? I guess I guess let me take a step back. The reason, and I'm happy you brought this up, uh, Bitcoin Foundation. So when I I remember sitting in a room with Gavin. In, in Austria, in a cafe in like 2012, saying, Gavin, we need to start a Bitcoin foundation to pool all of our resources together, you know, for this fledging little Bitcoin economy that we have. So we can pool resources and do like advertising campaigns and do the ability to, 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 to do um, marketing, advertising, pay, maybe pay developers, things like that. But then, and then eventually I left the foundation and then it became this thing that it wasn't meant to be. And then it, I guess, came back on, you know, the ones like me, you, and some of the others that were there in the beginning because we weren't involved. You see where I'm going with this? How do you protect your image when you're not involved anymore? 
Well, I mean, uh, it's hard because your reputation is going to be associated with the things that you create to some degree. Um, yeah, I struggle with this like all the time. And I, I, I'm thinking that you do too, because you start these amazing, amazing, you know, I mean, like, um, you know, just, we mentioned earlier and, and then they go off to do their own things. Um, it could be frustrating sometimes. I, I get frustrated by it. Probably much in the same way. If you have kids, uh, and they grow up, you're going to be frustrated by the things they do. And, um, you know, you, you hope and you pray that they do, you know, their best work and that they stay the course, but you know, things often don't. And sometimes those things are meant to change our visions for where we want these things to go as time, you know, goes by may not end up being the right vision for those organizations because the, the market, you know, has changed. The circumstances have changed and organizations need to evolve with the ever evolving markets. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you'll disagree with the path that they're taking and they end up being right. You know, I, I, I like to say I'm right 51% of the time. I love um, that. I love that. I love that. Um, but, you know, that, that means I'm wrong 49% yeah. of the time. And so uh, uh, just in, just enough that you you can, you over time win the bets. <laughs> um, uh, and so um, uh, reputationally, how you deal with that, it's, you know, I'm, I'm proud of all the things that I've created. Um, I, I feel good about the things that I did at the time. I feel I did my best work, clearly didn't do everything right, made mistakes along the way, but I'm proud of the things that I do. And if some people, you know, disagree or want to criticize it, you know, haters going to hate, um, you know, we're, we're, we're having a, you know, uh, an earthly experience. And in this experience, yeah. you know, we're intended to make mistakes. I mean, that's how we learn. That's kind of the, the, the purpose of life. And, you know, if people are going to hold it against you, you know, that's, that's their prerogative, but, you know, their decision. And, you know, and I want to talk about Bitpanda for a second. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we're working with them and we have been for a few months now. They love me and I love them. So I'm asking that you give them some love and some support, especially if you're listening from Europe. Bitpanda is the leading European platform for investing in digital assets. It doesn't hurt. Actually, it helps that they're based out of Austria, which is one of my favorite countries in the world. And Vienna is one of my favorite cities in the world to visit. I try to go as frequently as I can. And, you know, meeting up with the Bitpanda team is always a pleasure. I really like Bitpanda's approach. Why? Well, basically what they're doing is to apply the same tech that we're used to from Bitcoin and apply it to other digitized assets. And, and I'll explain why. And, and if you check out their website, you'll understand how that actually works because they're really pushing hard for bringing crypto to the masses and, and educate people on the topic. Unlike other companies that just want to really give love to their customers, Bitpanda is giving love and, and, and spending money on mass adoption, just bringing more people into Bitcoin with their recently launched educational platform. It's not only free, it's called Bitpanda Academy. It's not only free, but you'll actually learn and you'll earn five euro just for taking quizzes on their site. So it's a great way to force you to learn more about Bitcoin. Check them out. Again, they give me love. So I'm asking for you, my listeners, to give them some love. Brock, when I when I met you, your your life started to to change and pivot. I don't know if you've talked about like this in, in the larger, like general sense of it, but from when I met you, um, I think it was like 2014, uh, you were still um you still are, but you were very much involved in um in blockchain capital. And maybe this was like pre that, but over what I've noticed over, over the past few years, uh, is that you've completely changed. Like, or maybe this was your attitude the whole time, but you've changed your attitude and outlook on life, uh, where, you know, you came out and said, I'm donating all my money to philanthropy. And then you have hurricane Irma in 2017 and you go down to Puerto Rico and you basically, uh, have, thousands of people, crypto entrepreneurs that are fo that followed you there. And you guys put all of your money to rebuild things like the electrical grid. Uh, I've been following you for a very long time in that. Um, when did that transition for you personally? And then you, you got married, you beautiful baby. Um, did that, this transition happen uh, during crypto or as a result of your involvement in crypto? Or do you think you were uh, at a life, uh, you know, a, a change in your life? And, um, 
tell us like your 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 outlooks and your views now because you look from the times that I have met you and been able to to have conversations it seems like you're more at peace now well i mean we we're always changing ourselves and so i've always been a very kind generous uh optimistic you know sort of person i've i've kind of proud of my call it character throughout my life but i was definitely call it more selfish you know focused on making money and you know what am i going to earn and over time i found uh, an interesting um piece of information and i found the less i care about what i earn the more successful i tend to be and that doesn't necessarily mean in terms of what i make off of a particular concept but i found my ideas resonate more so for example I say, I, I'm meeting with some entrepreneurs. We're talking about ideas, and I, I, I start putting an idea on the table of something interesting that can happen. And the entrepreneurs are like, "Wow, I love that. I'd love to do that with you." And I'm like, "Great, let's do it." And they're like, "Awesome!" And so we talk for an hour or whatever, and we get through the idea. And eventually, I'm like, "Yeah, so let's do let's do this." I'm like, "Okay, so well, what am I going to get?" You know, the 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 other entrepreneurs are like, "So how much?" Basically, they're asking, how much do I want, Brock, and how much are they going to get for, for building it? And I go, you can have it all. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, I don't want anything. I, I just would love to see this idea uh, realized. And they're like, but I want you involved. I go, am I not involved? Am I not helping right now? They're like, but, but, but I want you to own something because I want to know that you're going like, to stay involved. I'm like, I'm going to stay involved. I don't value ideas. And they're like, you know, all confused. I'm like, here, let me tell you what. In, in six months, if you feel I've added demonstrable value, you know, if I've added material value, not for the idea, but for, you know, helping you with capitalization and other things, if I've shown up and you feel I've really, really earned something, you can give me something then. And they're like, oh, okay. And I go, and by the way, if you give me nothing, I'm still probably going to help you just as much. And they're just like sitting there confused. But the, the, the value or the lesson in this is, is one that's generally not immediately obvious. And that is that we live in a world of friction. There's friction everywhere. And what I'm doing is I'm eliminating the friction from creation, where most of the time deals fail because people get greedy. All of a sudden, I get too focused on how much I'm going to get, and then I don't want to give you enough, and then you're feeling unhappy because you don't think that you're getting enough. And what I'm, that does is it, it adds friction to an environment of creation. And so what I've been experimenting with is eliminating friction removing the friction from whatever event happening. And by eliminating the friction of what I'm going to earn and the economics of my own, uh, my ideas um, manifest at a rate that is, uh, uh, I can't compare it to anything I've ever experimented with. And so that's one of the things that I learned that started to change my outlook. Prior to you know starting with these experiments, what I did is I used to try and own you know, 20, 30, 40, 50%, sometimes as much as 80% of the things that I was founding, even though I didn't intend to be CEO or stick around and be there full time. And what happens is when I own 50% of a company that other people are building and then the dilution and all the things happen, resentment occurs. You know, all of a sudden the team is like, where's Brock? You know, he's the biggest shareholder in this company. Why isn't he here in the trenches with us every day? And that resentment eventually poisons an organization, or it doesn't allow me to recruit the best people possible. And so I migrated away from trying to own a lot of things to uh, having kind of a general rule, which is I, I don't want to own more than 10% of anything unless I plan on being in the trenches every day. And when I started owning 5 or 10% of the businesses that I founded, what happened is the entrepreneurs were always just really grateful for my involvement. You know, they, they always felt that I added far more value than I received. And as a result of that, the organizations would always listen to me more closely because there was no resentment building. They would, um, uh, and because they felt that I'd earned everything I had, that I didn't have an obligation to keep earning. You know, I, I helped birth the thing, maybe came up with the idea, often raised all the money, brought the team together, and that I continued to be there and I would show up to board meetings or whatever, I'd be supportive. But there wasn't, uh, I didn't build, I didn't set an expectation that I didn't realize, you know, 
under-promise, over-deliver. And so through that process, then I decided I didn't really care if I owned anything. And so that, that taught me a lot, uh, just about, you know, sort of control and creation. And so the, the, the thing that happened with Puerto Rico, and it was Hurricane Maria, what, what happened uh, prior to that is, you know, during the, the boom days, there was this perception that, you know, if you were near me, you would get rich. You know, that I knew what was going on in the crypto markets or, you know, and that every, you know, I, and the perception that I had the Midas touch, that everything I turned, you know, touch turned to gold, which isn't accurate. Um, but it was, you know, this perception occurred. And, and so what would happen is people wanted to meet up with me all the time, everywhere in the world. And I was so busy that people you know, still do. Yeah. Well, you couldn't get on the phone with me and it was, was really hard to reach. And so what would happen is, you know, I'm like, okay, I prefer to meet people in person anyway, because that's where I can read a person better. It's where my intuition works back to the earlier statements around, you know, assessing people and just having good judgment around, you know, their character and stuff. I found, you know, phone calls were a little harder when I, when I was in the, the, the same room where I could feel the presence of the person, I was better able to read them. And so people would be like, when, when are you going to be in Europe next? And I'd be like, well, I'm going to be in London on this date, or I'm going to be in Stockholm on this date, or Berlin, or Amsterdam, or you know, Barcelona, or whatever it might be. But I started checking the conversion rates. And so uh, I realized that if I was coming to London, you know, people would fly from around Europe to, to be there during the three days I would be there or whatever. And you know, London had a, you know, call it a 25 to 50% conversion rate. Amsterdam had a high one, but a little bit lower, call it a 20, 20 to 40% conversion rate. Berlin was good. And then certain Barcelona, certain cities were really low, you know, because people didn't have other business to do there, right? You know, they, they were going, well, if I'm going to go fly to London to meet Brock, is there anything else I can do? They're like, oh yeah, I need to meet this person and do that thing and blah, blah, blah. And so I, I started testing these things. And then I realized that I, I would hang out in this Spanish island in the summer known as Ibiza or Ibiza. Yeah. And and when I told people I'd be in Ibiza, you know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I can't do that. And then they'd be like, wait, honey, what, what, do, what do you think about taking a trip to Ibiza? And I realized that Ibiza had like an 80 to 90 percent conversion rate because I was going to a place where everyone really wanted to go. And I was just becoming their excuse to go there. And so um, uh, I, I started assessing conversion rates. And then when I became aware when, you know, when my consciousness was aware of the fact that people were willing to go where I go, and, and I don't mean just anybody, I mean some, some of the smartest people I know, some of the most successful people I know, some of the wealthiest people I know, you know, really, really interesting people. Um, I was like, wow, uh, I guess that's a responsibility. If where I am, you know, creates a, 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 like a whirlpool of activity, maybe... I should try going somewhere that could benefit from that rather than going where I want to go. What if I went somewhere in need? What if I went to a place that needed help and uh, needed some support? Would people follow me there? And this was a, a theory or a thesis. It was completely unproven. And so one of the other businesses I started was the, the first crypto bank. Um, so back in 2013, one of the systemic risks that we had as an industry was banking. If you were a startup back in the day, you couldn't get bank accounts if you were in the United States. And um, only Silicon Valley Bank was banking Zappo, Circle, and Coinbase. Pretty much every other startup in the country was having a really hard time getting banking. And most of those entrepreneurs were not fully disclosing the nature of their business to the bank, which is technically a felony. Though the entrepreneurs didn't know that, they were just you know doing what entrepreneurs do, trying to make it work and using personal bank accounts or whatever to to make things work. But I recognized that you know that was a crime technically, not that it you know the, not that people are knowingly doing something wrong. There's not a moral or ethical issue. It just happens to be in violation of law. And so I'm like, well, I need to solve this. I don't know anything about owning or starting banks, but I started looking at buying banks and late 2013 and into early 2014. And I realized it was going to take a while and it was going to be very expensive and cost more than I had. And so I said, okay, well, there's got to be a way to do this. I'm like, wait, wait, I'm a hacker. Um, there's got to be a back door into the U.S. financial system. I'm like, wait, what about the U.S. Virgin Islands and Guam and Samoa and Puerto Rico? And so the following day, I got on the phone with uh, someone in Puerto Rico that um, uh, specialized in telling people about the, the tax incentives and so I, I heard the pitch on the tax incentives. I said, that's great. Um, I'm not motivated by money or uh, taxes really right now. I'm motivated by building and creating. So that's not going to work for me. But I, I wanted to get on this call to ask you a question about banking. Is there an ability for a Puerto Rican bank 
to bank crypto companies. Is there a way to start a bank or buy a bank that might be faster than the rest of the United States? And he's like, oh, yes, 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 yes. The same laws that were passed in 2012 for the tax incentives have another thing in there that allow you to create this, this Act 273, what's known as an international financial entity or an IFE. He goes, essentially, it's a bank, but not a bank, but it gives you all the privileges. I go, wow, has anyone done that? He goes, no, no one's done it yet. I'm like, I'm on a plane. And so I flew down to Puerto Rico and started this bank called Noble Bank, which banked Tether and Bitfinex and all these sort of things. It was the first crypto bank, and we went up to about $4 billion of assets pretty quickly. Again, another thing I started, and I wasn't involved beyond really uh, uh, the, the beginning of the creation of it, um, because I knew nothing about running or managing a bank. So I removed myself right away. <laughs> I said, here you go. Figured it out. Now you guys build it. Another example of... Um, uh, things not working out the right way. The the person I hired to run that business um, turned out to not be the right guy, but uh, you know, another lesson learned. And so um, I learned a lot about Puerto Rico in that process. And so when I started thinking about, okay, wh- what am I gonna, where am I going to go? Where can I go help some people? And where can I get a lot of people to come join me? I said, well, Puerto Rico is probably the place. As crypto people, as an American citizen, we pay no capital gains tax living in Puerto Rico, and we have a 4% ordinary income tax on uh, services outside of Puerto Rico, meaning if we advise companies or we consult or we do whatever, we pay 4% taxes. I go, well, crypto people are going to have a bunch of money and probably be thinking about taxes at some point. So I think it would be easy to convince a bunch of people to come to Puerto Rico for those tax benefits. And so I'd already kind of made the decision that Puerto Rico was the place that I was going to go. And then when Hurricane Maria hit, I was like, wow, I guess uh, uh, I have my idea. And Puerto Rico, probably there's no better time to come. I don't really feel like going to Puerto Rico right now. I was kind of hoping in a couple of years <laughs> I'd be doing this. But uh, I guess the moment is now. Uh, I want to go somewhere and see if people are willing to come there with me and if we can make an impact, a positive impact on the world. And so uh, I moved down here following Hurricane Maria, and I've been living down here for about two and a half years. And uh, uh, I'd say the early data is pretty pretty compelling. A bunch of people have moved down here, um, and a bunch of people have gotten involved in you know taking their entrepreneurial you know ingenuity and applying it to problems. And it's hard, right? You know, none of us like lived here before, and it's hard to move to a new place and learn kind of how things work and how you interact with people and you know the learning of the Spanish and such. And so um, it's been it's been a learning experience, one of the most uh, amazing learning experiences of my life. Um, got very involved in sort of the philanthropic effort. Started a foundation called Integro. Uh, Integro in Spanish is, means uh, uh, integration, and it also means it has two meanings depending upon uh, uh, how the word is used: integrity. And so the concept is to integrate with integrity. And uh, what we did for the first year, not knowing the place, our organization was focused on exploring. Right, explore the island, get to know the place, uh, develop connections, get to meet people, and. Uh, and at the same time, do some activations. And so we, we held some events. We did this first one, one year, two years ago in March, we did a first restart week where we had three major conferences, uh, Michael Turpin with Coin Agenda, uh, D10E, uh, as well as a uh, blockchain unbound. These were three mega conferences. And then, you know, I just like in a decentralized way, I called up like 50 friends and I say, come throw an event in Puerto Rico, not, not under anyone's organizational management. I just started calling friends. I'm like, do me a favor, come do an event in Puerto Rico. And so we had like 20 or 30 other small events running all the time. We threw it, uh, my friends over at lottery.com or Matt Clemenson threw a, a giant concert, uh, took over the Coliseum and had Buster Rhymes and Akon and Black Star and some of the Wu-Tang and all these people and did a free concert for the entire island to attend. Um, and the, we sold out every flight into Puerto Rico and we sold out every hotel in San Juan. Uh, it was probably still to this day the biggest event that's happened on the island post uh, uh, Hurricane Maria. It may not have been, so don't quote me on that. I, I said, I think. Uh, I haven't seen anything, but I, I should go research that. And wow, I was like blown away by the idea that um, I could bring, you know, we could bring so many people here. And a lot of amazing things have come out of it. A lot of people have moved here. We went and then did another event in the western part of the island in Mayaguez. Uh, the University of Puerto Rico Mayaguez is one of the top engineering schools in the United States. And so there's incredibly, uh, incredible talent uh, here. We held the first ever hackathon. Uh, I donated the money or we donated the money through Integro to, to help rebuild the library in the, in the university. 
We went down to the south in Ponce and again, held the first ever hackathons and brought people focused on social impact and agriculture and permaculture, and, you know, energy grids. And, and so that was what our first year was really about. It was exploring the island, developing connections and, uh, uh, and, and kind of activating ideas. Then last year, our second year down here was uh, focused on grassroots sort of philanthropic efforts. And so our foundation supported 37 different charities. You know, I'm a, a capitalist. I think of myself as a conscious capitalist where I think about what I'm doing and what impact it's going to have, not just, you know, does it make money? I think about its overall, call it impact. And so we supported 37 small charities because when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if I went to one big charity, they would just tell me, you know, this is what we do and give us the money and they don't spend it very efficiently uh, and they don't spend it transparently. And so I, I said, well, as a capitalist, I focus on return on you know, investment. If I invest $1 as a VC into a company, I'm hoping to see a multiple of that back. So why, why does charity have to be different? Why do when you give a dollar to charity, does 30 cents go to the underlying cause? You know, that number should be at least $1, but that as an investor wouldn't be a success if $1 was just $1. How do we give money away where $1 can have $2 of impact or $5 of impact? You know, call it a return on impact over return on investment. And we decided that would work best by going to small charities where a little bit of money would go a long way, where they were not, you know, there wasn't lots of overhead and we could work closely with those organizations also to learn. So by supporting 37 different charities, we learned a lot about the issues on the island and we learned about it in a very sort of hands-on grassroots way and where every dollar we gave away had more than a dollar of impact. And so that's what, you know, last year was really about until the later part of the year when Hurricane Dorian was coming at us and Hurricane Dorian missed us, but hit the Bahamas. We said, well, love thy neighbor. I guess we've been spared uh, from this one, but let's see what we can do in the Bahamas. And so my personal assistant went over there and was uh, uh, running the food program in Abacos, feeding 10,000 meals a day. Um, uh, we were building housing in Abacos thanks to an organization called Habitas that donated all the bell tents. And we were involved in mission after mission after mission, working with all the Puerto Rican organizations that were getting involved in supporting uh, uh, relief efforts in the Bahamas. And so we started to develop our relief capabilities. And this year is really about now we've been down here. We know a little bit about what we're doing. And I had no background in philanthropy. I had no background in, in this sort of stuff. I just decided I wanted to, you know, I wanted to change my life. Um, you know, I'm a gamer by background. And so I view life as a game of sorts, you know, the game of life. And how, you know, what is the objective in the game is kind of an important thing. You know, uh, most people play the game of life in pursuit of money. They measure their success by how much money they have. And I'm like, that's a really bad game. Um, it doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make the world a better place. And I said, well, if I was, how, what would be a different set of um, metrics, you know, a different set of KPIs or, you know, uh, key performance indicators to, to measure my success by? And I said, well, I want to measure my life. I want to measure my success in this world by the positive impact I have. That's what I was going to ask you. What incentivizes you? Because that's why people probably freak out going back to like the, you know, going back to like when people want to give you 50% of their company. They're like, well, if we're, what is incentivizing Brock? Like, what is his agenda? That's probably one of the reasons why people freak out. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm measuring my life by the impact I have. Uh, I don't care if I make money off an idea as long as the idea happens. Um, you know, things of that nature. I care more about what I create and the impact it has and not what I get. You know, I care more about giving than receiving. I'm a giver. Uh, and I receive plenty, you know, there's this, you know, you, you know, this concept in, um, which is the more you give, the more you get, or, you know, what you give comes back tenfold. In my personal experience, um, I, I, I believe that to be true. I found it to be true. I found that the more I focus on just making positive things happen and the less I care about what I receive, the more I get. I'm because the things just work out. Now I maybe make less on that one project. Yeah. Net, when, net I create, when I create five projects instead of one and I make less off each of them and maybe none off one of them. But uh, in the end, I created more. And like a venture capitalist, I got a diversified portfolio where if I put all my eggs in that one basket, I may have gotten zero. And so it's working for me. And I'm not sure if this is just an anomaly or, you know, uh, uh, I've gotten lucky, but 
I, I base it off my own personal life experience that I believe that the more I give, the more I get. We're, let's talk about coronavirus because uh, we're coming towards the end of the show and I, and I want to talk about it. Um, what are your plans now for the short term future? And then what are your plans for uh, the future? One things, once things uh, transition into like rebuilding mode. Yeah. So uh, coronavirus is a big deal. It's a much bigger deal than I think most people have given it credit for. I was telling all my friends last year that uh, the events are going to happen in February. Um, I've been receiving texts from people every day. They're like, Brock, how do you know the future? But I was telling everyone um, that uh, in February, something is going to happen that's going to start to impact the global economy, and it's going to really hit us in March. And, uh, and it's likely going to come from China Wow! or have a connection to China. And uh, uh, everyone's just like, you, you timed it and nailed it. The only thing you didn't tell us is what was going to be the cause, mm. which I never, uh, I never weighed in on because I didn't know. But um, I had a strong, call it glimpse into the future. Uh, like a feeling. I ha- yeah, I had a feeling and I based it upon you know, lots of data. I fl- follow you know, global macro trends. I look at issues of sort of national security and I look at, um, I study astrology and, you know, through all my, you know, call it uh, tools that I assess and get information from, I, my, my feeling was that something was going to happen. I, this is one where I wish I was wrong. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, where, where we are is um, uh, we've got a, uh, uh, an event occurring that is, you know, the coronavirus is not likely going to, to kill most of us. It's, it's going to kill a fair number of people. But the flu does that, and amongst other things. It's it's the reaction more than anything and the impact of, you know, this event uh, and our just not being ready that's going to really be the problem. Coronavirus is only part of the problem. You know, the, the fact that the global uh, supply chain and the global manufacturing industry is starting to slow down and coming to a, a, a very slow rate uh, is going to have a massive impact, uh, unprecedented impact. We can't measure really what it's going to do because you can't just turn off manufacturing, lay everybody off and then just turn it back on again. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't light up, you know, so easily. Um, also things like medicine, you know, the world's likely going to run out of medicines. We're going to run out of antibiotics. Hospitals gonna, are going to be overrun, uh, uh, in the sense that there's going to be too much demand for the healthcare system that is more than we have, which means if you get into a car accident or have some other ailment as they're triaging med- medical support, you just may not get help. And probably as many people will die of unrelated things due to their not being able to get medical treatment, or you couldn't get your insulin if you're diabetic, or you couldn't get your um, uh, blood pressure medications because the, the global s- supply chain is like um, locking up and the transportation industry is being decimated. It's um, crazy. People are not going to be paying their rents. And when people don't pay their rents, governments are going to say, okay, we're not going to let people evict you. And then the homeowners are not going to be able to pay their mortgages and the impact that's going to have on banks. I could go on for a long time. And uh, uh, I mean, we're probably going to end up in in an environment as a result of this that's not too far off from the Great Depression. To that extent? not just economically or like what type of economic carnage, uh, the economic impact of this is, you know, going to be extraordinary. What should people do right now? In your opinion, just stay home. Yeah, the the right, the right thing we based upon the data we have is to quarantine yourself. This is not a time to be going out to the parties and you know, it's right now is the time to make sure you have sufficient food in your home and water. And if you've got a generator, gasoline if you don't have a generator get get a generator if you can uh stock up on medications and things you're going to need cash will be king you know get to the bank get to the atms get as much cash out as you can um if you can get a ventilator get a ventilator um right now the best thing you can do for yourself is to avoid catching it and you do that by you know isolating yourself you know it's a good time to read some books, a good time to, you know, get on the internet, good time to trade crypto. I mean, it's a good time to uh, uh, avoid uh, being out in public places. I mean, in Puerto Rico, uh, they just implemented two nights ago something similar to martial law. Um, so we have a curfew at 9 p.m. We have to be home. 
We're not allowed to be outside from nine o'clock till five o'clock in the morning. And there's a $5,000 fine or six months in jail. And I think they're upping that now for being outside, just leaving your home after 9 p.m. During the day, we're not allowed to be outside other than on the road to go to the hospital, to go to uh, the pharmacy, to, to, to pick up food. Uh, there's no like, you can't just be like driving around and hanging out. Uh, there's no hanging out on beaches. Every That's business for the left. best. It's for the best. Yeah, all, all businesses are closed. Every company, every business has been shut down. And so what's happening in Puerto Rico is very likely, or it's a, it's a very real possibility, this is what's going to happen in the United States in the coming days. Um, yeah, but don't you think that businesses will just shift? I mean, we're humans were resilient. At the end of the day, we like to consume and spend as more than we like to save, right? So we can't leave our houses. But don't you think we'll see like a, a shift in the way? I mean, when you have the world sitting at home, I, I can't I can't think that we won't see new companies, you know, even start up in a week from now that offer services to people that are stuck at home. I can't, I mean, I was just so la I'll give an example, Brock. Last night, me and Courtney were like, let's order in food, right? Like the rest of the world. And we're like, and Courtney's like, why don't you go and get it? Because it's going to be like three hours for food delivery on a normal day. It's about 45 minutes to get food to my island where we live. It took 20 minutes. What, yesterday. Why? Because all the Uber drivers are now driving delivery. On the flip side, it takes 30 minutes for me to get an Uber if I wanted to, you know, if I needed stuff to do something to leave my house or whatever. So I feel like there's like a shift. Am I wrong? No, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Obviously, the, the world isn't stopping. It's just some businesses are, are, are drying up completely, at least temporarily, and some businesses are booming. I mean, if you were in the janitorial services business selling cleaning supplies and hand sanitizers and masks, uh, you're, you, you've just had the greatest in a month of your life. Um, if you're in those sorts of businesses uh, right now, obviously, I think Netflix and, you know, video content, you know, people are watching more content. People are spending more time on the Internet. People are playing more video games. Um, you know, I mean, things like Disney might not be a great bet because Disney's business, yes, on the content media side is going to do well, but they have their theme parks, which are going to do poorly. And their theme parks represent, I think, about a, a quarter to a third of their revenues, but about half their profits. And so Disney won't be a, a winner in this, but you know Netflix probably does. I imagine their subscription signups are going through the roof. There are obviously some businesses that are going to do very well as a result of these uh, challenges. It's not, uh, um, it's not like everything uh, uh, is, is failing. Some things are booming as a result. And so I, I pray that there's like that, you know, epic shift, um, and people don't lose their jobs. A lot of people, I just found out this morning, um, my friend owns a coffee shop and like a few months ago they were redoing the street. And so, uh, his business insurance paid out because the street was closed. Same thing with the hurricane. Um, as far as I understand from doing the research this morning, business insurance doesn't pay for this. This is not covered under business insurance because after the SARS outbreak like 15 years ago, uh, where like um, I forget which insurance company had to pay like a crazy payout to Mandarin Oriental for closing after the SARS outbreak in China, um, all the insurance companies removed it. They said that if it's a if it's a disease that can be communicated uh, from person to person, it's not covered. Uh, and it's, it's pretty crazy that that's, that that's the case. Uh, it actually pisses me off a lot, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I mean, the insurance companies would, would all likely go under, I mean, this is like, a, we're, we're experiencing like a 2008, uh, global financial crisis. I mean, the, the, the administration here in the U S is, you know, uh, it's a $1.5 trillion stimulus effort to, to fund things in need. Uh, the federal reserve just drops rates to zero, zero to, uh, 0.25. And so, um, you know, these are, again, unprecedented times where uh, uh, the only way to get out of this is to, to bail out of it. And as those of us in crypto know, um, the, the system itself is barely in a position to be able to bail things out. So, um, you know, this is likely an event that is just going to uh, bring us closer to closer to the um, major shift in the financial system. Uh, the shift that most of us are, uh, you know, if, if you're a holder of Bitcoin, you at least to some extent believe in the reason why things like Bitcoin and crypto are not performing well. There's a but there's uh, a there's a moral struggle that's going on, Brock, because, you know, in crypto, 
it's a it's been you know for the past 10 years in crypto it's been okay to like point out problems of the world and then say that we don't know how but blockchain technology or you know a shift in the world will will fix those problems will change it and so it's been okay you know you learn in school it's okay to ask questions without having the answers so morally you know the, the our our industry has been very leaning libertarian anarcho capitalist fundamentally against bailouts and Brock so privately I know I have friends that you're friends with too that are you know uh, uh, preaching that gospel for for dozens of years, you know, but now it's it's we're here we are in this global epidemic pandemic, and it seems like the best solution would be a bailout. And so these people are like struggling with their libertarian beliefs, but they don't know how to solve this global problem. So like, you know, are you seeing that too? Uh, yeah, no, no, no doubt. I mean, I think in two thousand eight we should have um, probably not bailed out the big banks and um we shouldn't have done that bailout because that would have probably not as affected as many lives in a in a way that's negative it would have affected the bankers right it would have affected some businesses it would have affected some high net worth people um would have affected you know all of our collective savings but it would have softened the blow uh instead what we did is we uh bailed out those businesses and further encumbered our financial system, uh, further entrenched ourselves in the path that we're on. And now we're, you know, this is a scenario where clearly I think there's a better moral argument to be made for the bailout because this is now, uh, you know, going to affect all of the, the average person, right? This is going to affect all of the, the people with regular jobs, well, not only that, but my friend, so I have an intern uh, here in Florida. I have an intern at, here at Untold Stories, and he just messaged me, and he's like, Charlie, me and my girlfriend and my three friends are being kicked off the campus. They have nowhere to go. Where do they go? So I'm going to put them up in my Airbnb into, for the time being, but I feel somewhat responsible um, a little bit because I'm in a position where I could help them. But what, I mean, what, it's just, I, I, I don't know, Brock. I don't know what to say. I, I wish I had the answer. Um, I'm at a loss uh, for words. It, it's right now is a is a time to yes, you know, tap into your empathy, and uh, and if you are blessed with the means uh, to be able to do something, like in that instance, you've got an Airbnb. This isn't you know, this is a time where you make it available to to people to to put them up if they don't have somewhere to go. I mean, there's a lot of people that are going to end up in, uh, and this is going to be a very 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 unpleasant. Um, event for a lot of people. I mean, for all of us to some degree, but, you know, just being stuck in your house, watching movies, playing games, reading books and surfing the web is, uh, I, I wouldn't call that really rough yeah. <laughs> um, relative to what some people are going to experience. This is going to be, um, I mean, it's going to be deadly uh, for some people and in, and, and, and in, a, in an excruciating way. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, in life savings, bankruptcies, small businesses, small and medium businesses are going to be impacted most, uh, you know, people ending up in, in tent cities. Uh, it's, it's, uh, people feeling like they're starving. I mean, the good news is the human body can go about two months without food. I know people don't realize that. Um, I, I, I fast I regularly. I was actually starting my fast. You got yesterday. me into it. Uh, um, yeah. Intermittent fasting. We started doing a few months ago. It's been amazing. Brock, but I like to end the show on like good notes. What, what, what with every, you know, paradigm shift, uh, Y2K, you know, the internet, uh, SARS, uh, 9-11 with, 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 with crazy, you know, when, when you've immense world events, even hurricanes, uh, you have, uh, shifts uh, a lot of the times for the better. You you go from one extreme to the other, right? I I, I was hearing uh, as a kid. So what type of uh, things can we look forward to? Um, what type of uh, this is not just for the listeners, but this is for me and for you. We're sitting here in our homes, worried. Um, economically, we'll see a societal shift. I think hopefully we'll see uh, people nice to each other after this is over. Well, so that's the, the positive of. A thing that comes out of something like this in the long run is mass awakening, right? Mass awareness. What is going to happen is people are going to become more aware. People are going to wake up and start to think more about how to better take care of themselves, to be better prepared for future events. You know, people will probably start saving more money. 
because they're going to go, wow, what if something bad happens again in my lifetime? I mean, very similar to, you know, coming out of the Great Depression or people coming out of World War II. When you come out of these very tragic experiences, there's really uh, powerful lessons that we all learn, you know, from them. And one is to, to be prepared for the, you know, for real challenges and to be aware of what we consume. I mean, right now, everyone is, you know, probably in their homes going, wow, let's not throw any food away. We might need that food in a couple of days. And that means we may, you know, coming out of all of this, people may remember to be a little bit more conscious about what they consume. And uh, uh, I mean, there's a bunch of great things. I mean, the price of oil coming down to 30, maybe $20 a barrel is going to uh, uh, impact uh, fossil fuel production. People are going to be going, wow, I wish I had, you know, solar panels right now. I wish I was net zero and off grid. And coming out of this as we recover, you know, that might accelerate in a massive way. And we might see, you know, a mass acceleration away from fossil fuels to, to clean, resilient energy systems. What's happening is a bunch of people are waking up and being aware of the impact of the world around them rather than being asleep. People are going to be more conscious as a result of this. And any time that you can impact mass you know, consciousness on a mass scale around the planet, only good things can come of that. Brock Pierce, thank you so much for coming on the show. That's how I'm ending this show. Exactly what you just said. Perfect. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you again. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.